this last week, I'll just tell you kind of who I am. I'm from Kentucky. Uh, <clears throat> so um, uh, I sort of left Kentucky the week I got saved in, in, in one way or another. I got saved at a, at a rock and roll dance in my hometown at the National Guard Armory. I went out there to sell some drugs uh, 47 years ago this week. <clears throat> And uh, a friend led me to Jesus. And, and uh, in the middle of a song called Inagata de Via, I got saved. <laughs> Y'all remember that song? And, uh, and uh, I come from seven generations of redneck non-achievers. <clears throat> and a lot of darkness and a lot of pain and a lot of, uh, of uh, isolation. And we lived in a, you know, sort of, my daddy was a well digger. And uh, I tell people we moved every time the rent come due. And that's just sort of the way we were brought up to survive. And then, and then, but that night in the armory, when I met Jesus, I found out that it wasn't about surviving. It was about overcoming. And so I became an overcomer that night. And I didn't know that where somebody had spilled a puddle of beer on the floor. It was where I prayed my first prayer. And I came up from there a brand new feller with wet knees. And ready to go forward, and because of what God had done in my life, I started telling people about it. And uh, the next week, I was asked to uh, speak at a, in a church. And so that means first time I ever went to church, I was a speaker. <clears throat> and uh, and this week, I start my 48th year of uh, of doing that. And uh, it's been it's been really an incredible journey, and, uh, and, I, and I don't expect it to be any less incredible today than it was then, because uh, it's not just about looking back, but we should never be afraid to. We should always be remembering the mighty acts of God and telling of His wondrous works, you know. So let's, right now, we're investing in tomorrow's looking back, and uh, <clears throat> we're living in a time where uh, God is expressing and revealing himself through it in a generation through the outrageous demonstrations or expressions of his creativity. And we are created by the creator to be creative. And if we're not creative, uh, we're also created by the creator to, to worship. And if you're not a worshiper of God, you're forfeiting the reason you exist. So if we're created to worship and we're created to be creative, should not our creativity and our worship be simultaneous? So should not our worship be, have a creative edge to it that, that, that is the spontaneity of God's people responding to what they see of his revealed glory? And as we respond to his glory, our expression should be creative enough to match the wonder of what he is expressing when he reveals himself. And so, and I think that's one of the reasons God has taken the boundaries and the limitations off of a generation and says, go ahead and, and break competition and break comparison off of your life and be the you that you're created to be and demonstrate my glory through your life to a culture and you'll change the world. Because, uh, you know, we will never change culture by becoming like the culture. But we will never change the church by becoming like the church either. 
if all we're doing is just being church people, in other words, let's, be, let's live our lives bigger than church. Let's live our lives without the comparison, without the limitations, without the legalism, without the bondage, without the things that culturally bind us to an expression. The ones that are, that are, that are cultural expressions that are supposed to be brought as an offering unto God is one thing. But to limit who we are born out of a culture is, is thievery of the enemy to, to keep us bound, to keep us from being all that we were created to be. Now, and, and I'll tell you, uh, speak, when, see, we live in a day where there's an explosion of creativity happening in the earth. And we should be on the cutting edge, the leading edge of that. Because creativity, again, is how God desires to reveal his nature and his glory to us. And, and lawmakers and lawgivers, they never, they never shape culture. Politicians don't shape culture. What lawgivers and lawmakers do is they see something negative in the culture, and then they react to that and try to keep, create rules and regulations and rails for humanity to run on and boundaries for man to run on and limitations and, uh, and try to control our future born out of a knee-jerk reaction to something negative in the culture. Does that make sense? That's where our laws and stuff come from, to create these boundaries and regulations. And we need boundaries and regulations sometimes, but what, that's not going to shape culture. Who shapes culture? Songwriters do. Poets do. Artists do. And the reason they can is because they're not creating legalism for intellectual agreement. They're accessing your heart. Because that song is going to reach something in your spirit. And see, music is a force that bypasses the intellect and goes straight to the spirit and awakens who you were born to be. That's why when you hear a song, it's it. how many times have you ever done it? Boy, I should have wrote that song. Now, man, you hear that song? I should have wrote that. Why? Because they've accessed an emotion with imagery and beauty and power that awakens something that is life in you. That's my song. That's, or they're playing our song. See, because... The, the poetic sensitivities and the, and, the, and the artist's sensibilities access something in the spirit realm that shapes who we are. And then it becomes, and, and it becomes our language. I mean, how many of us have been walking around this week singing R-E-S-P-E-C-T? You know? <clears throat> you know? And, and because a culture was shaped by this amazing woman that carried a gift that would awaken you know what? We do, we do uh, deserve a little respect around here. All of a sudden that becomes our belief system and our, and our dialect determines our destiny. Yeah. Like I'm, I live in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And one day a, a fellow named Rick Hall you know, built a, a recording studio in a, in a cotton patch down there. And, <clears throat> and, and what had happened was is a hundred years before that, there was a little Indian girl. How many of you know the story? One, one person. Let me tell you a quick version of it. There was a little Indian girl. When, when uh, Andrew Jackson and all them rattleheads of that generation, politicians and power-hungry people, came in and shifted and pressed all of the Indian folks, First Nations people, off of our land and put broken covenant and, and all kinds of uh, um, betrayal and all that stuff, 
press those folks off and put them on a trail called the Trail of Tears to march them to Oklahoma, sent them during the wintertime so most of them would die on the way and Oklahoma wouldn't have a big Indian problem. You know, here this poisonous sickness and that kind of thinking, all born out of greed and control and political power. Well, look what they did. Broken covenant and betrayal pressed them off and they bring in the slaves which were broken covenant and betrayal and put them in, on the land. And there was a little Indian girl that walked all the way to Oklahoma from Muscle Shoals. And why was it, why was it called Muscle Shoals? Because there was a 10-mile waterfall there. And that waterfall was not like a drop. It was a 10-mile at an angle. You know, a deep pitch like that with huge stones, big, you know, huge, big old rocks. And it roared with such intensity that you could hear it roar for 10 miles. It was the sound of, of rush, sound of many waters. They pressed the Indian folks off of the land, sent them to Oklahoma on the Trail of Tears. One little girl, her name was Telly Nehe. She was 15 years old. She said, I cannot live in Oklahoma. I can understand that. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> that was unkind. <laughs> All right. But but uh, she she said I can't, I can't live in Oklahoma. But I, I've got I got a lot of relatives in Oklahoma. That's why I can't live in Oklahoma. All right. But my mother was born in Tulsa during the Dust Bowl. She's got some stories to tell you. And uh, uh, but anyway, this little gal said I can't live in Oklahoma because she had grown up in a place where she could hear the river sing. And it, and it had added so much value to her life because it added belonging. She always knew where she was because there was a sound that was constantly awakening who she, she was. And now she's an Oklahoman and couldn't hear the river sing. And so she took off walking. And for five miles, a little girl walked for five miles alone through all the treachery and made her way all the way back to where she could river, hear the river sing and she knew it was home. And, they call, and that's, one, that's why they call it the Singing River. But then later, of course, uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson dammed that thing up for the comforts of man, put a power station in and took the song away. And so many things have, for the comforts of man, have taken belonging and taken our song away. So many peoples. I mean, I, I, I come from a long line of that kind of stuff, as many of you, as many of you have. And... Uh, but when she got back there, and then, and then about 100 years later, there was a fellow named Rick Hall built a recording studio there in the middle of a cotton patch. And one, one day a fellow walked in, and, he, and he, he says, I can sing. And he says, well, get in there and sing. And he did. And he went, when a man loves a woman, Percy Sledge had walked into the studio. And right behind Percy Sledge comes a lady singing R-E-S-P-E-C-T. And right behind that comes uh, Clarence Carter singing Patches. And right behind that, the sound started to go out and alert everybody in the world that there's a sound coming up out of that sand over there. Where the, and here comes the Rolling Stones. And then here comes Paul Simon. And here comes everybody but the Beatles. And Rick Hall said, those boys never amount to nothing. He wasn't going to record them. But... <clears throat> But here, come, here comes the whole world, and what, what a lot of folks thought, thought were, was Motown actually was a bunch of guys sitting on the river down there in Florence become the hit recording capital of the world. 
because there was a sound waiting there that defied all of the limitations of music and race and culture and all of their passions found one another and and it, and it's where 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 heart found song in the middle of a of a cotton patch and changed the world out of this synergistic creativity of a bunch of folks that were carrying something in a place that basically a little Indian girl who had a seeing eye and a hearing ear and a knowing heart gave herself to something that caused her heart to be pure. I can't live somewhere that the song that I'm born to sing cannot be heard. If there was anybody in the whole scenario that, 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 that deserves the honor in this thing, it would be that little girl who stepped out beyond all boundaries and all of man's expectations and went on a journey that nobody else would take, but set something in motion because the agreement that she was carrying with the land of what God would do in its future. So you want to see something pure and powerfully prophetic, right there it is. A little girl who was awakened to the song that she was born to sing. Now, <clears throat> when I say lawgivers and lawmakers don't shape culture, uh, for example... <clears throat> when I say artists do, poets do, songwriters do. And if we in the church could get broken from this comparison and competition thing, I'm wondering how many gifts are those very kind that would step out and sense and feel and know and step onto a land and determine its destiny and shape future generations. Because, listen guys, the best, very best time to influence the character of a child is about 500 years before he's born. So what is the song? What is the sound? What is the creativity in you that's been bound up and shut down because it may be not fit in the religious expectations? And uh, uh, how many, uh, I mean, there might be people in here right now that's anointed to make quilts that carry healing that'll change the way the future understands God as he's revealed through your creative expression in whole new ways. What if there are photographers in this room right now that God has anointed you to actually capture the light that reveals his glory? What, what if you're one that, that, that will, will play drums in such a way that when you smack a drum head, that there's a sound release that awakens healing in somebody's life? And we keep wanting to limit ourselves, limit God's doings to our former knowings and think we're gaining something because we come up with a new way to say the old thing. When in fact... God may be looking for a chef in this room. He may be looking for a poet in this room. He may be looking for somebody that's so embarrassed to read their poetry or so closed down and embarrassed to, to sing their song because it does not meet the criteria that we have said that's what music is supposed to sound like. We don't know what music's supposed to sound like. We know, that, we know that, that music is a force that God put in the earth to bypass all of our limitations and awaken the spirit realm. What if this church has got an expression of God's nature as it did in the days of the tabernacle of David, just waiting to, waiting to awaken? What if this is the church that the eyes of the world will turn to because that's a church when they glorify God and there's not a star in the deal, but when... When, when Matt and Natalie start to sing and everybody finds their note in their song and there's a symphony of atmosphere, symphony of worship changes the atmosphere. And what if this is the church that all over the world they will learn that every person that walks in there, cancer is broken. 
can we, can we just step on past all these limitations that the law givers and lawmakers are putting on our theology? I tell you guys, I've been having encounters with God ever since I was four years old that I still don't have the theology for. And I've come to a place after 47 years of ministry, I'm not, I'm not ashamed to tell you. There's a lot of things that I, can, I don't necessarily understand that I can look back now, but God's beginning to cause wisdom to marry understanding. And I can look back now and say, that thing that happened to me when I was four years old, that wasn't just something that happened to a kid. That was an encounter with God. And I, I couldn't even spell God. You know, we, we got to qu quit imposing our knowings and our limitations on the God who is unlimited. Now, uh, see, let, let me, when I think of, uh, of how, law, uh, how creatives and lawgivers and poets and artists shape culture, for example, if I was at home right now for Sunday dinner with my, with my mother, my mother's 85 years old, and if I were at Sunday dinner right now with my mama, I would sit down at the table and I can hear her now. She'd say, hey, hey, you, you, get your elbows off the table. And you know what I would do if I was, I would get my elbows right off the table. Why? Because I know my mama. She's 85, but she'll hurt you. Oh, yeah. I remember my mother one time, she said, boy, you do that again, I'll slap a knot on your head or Roberts can't take off. I'm telling you, you know. And, and I know that my mama don't have a bunch of empty threats. When she tells you to do something, you get your elbows off the table, right? And, and, uh. And now, but some, sooner or later you get to, how many of y'all have raised in a house like that? You don't put your elbows on the table. It just, that's wrong. Then you come to the place where you say, what in the world's wrong with putting your elbows on the table? Why is that such a big sin to put your elbows on the table? Well, uh, when Da Vinci painted the Last Supper, the only person in the picture with their elbows on the table is Judas. So that means an artist interpreted something that happened a thousand years before they were born. It's not even correct culturally. The picture's not. It's not biblically sound. It's not historically correct. But what he did is he gave a, a belief born out of his translation or interpretation. So that means an artist shaped culture to the point that it became then a bad thing to do. And then it became an, ultimately wound up becoming an etiquette in the, or a tradition. And the traditions of men is what renders the word of God ineffective too. Right? And there he did. He shaped culture. Still shaping culture today. Uh, there was a poet in 1829 put a poem in a newspaper in upstate New York that went something like this. It says, was the night before Christmas and all through the house. Not a creature stirring, not even a mouse. And before that poem is over, Christmas has been completely redefined because now it's not about Emmanuel, God with us, coming as a savior to the world. Now it's also about a big fat guy with a reindeer flying through the air on a, on a sleigh with a big old bunch of gifts and a bag. And, and once a year, and, and you know, there's whole economic structures that have been born out of. Our economy has to yield to a guy's poem. Every year, our, our, our economy is, is pointed toward a season defined by a poem that will ship and shape the way, ship and shape, 
the way we do life. Think about the enormity of that. And it's just about some guy who comes down the chimney once a year, bringing the packages. And I'm, and uh, you know, and he, he knows, he knows everything, and he's everywhere because he knows if you've been good or bad, and he's going to judge you and gift you according to your works. You see that? And I'm not one of those anti Santa Claus guys. I'm, I, I like. He gave me a guitar one time. And <laughs> And I'll always love him for it. <laughs> but nonetheless, the fact remains. Culture has been shaped by a poet. You know, the, how many of you saw the movie Braveheart? We wouldn't even know about William Wallace had it not been for a guy named Blind Harry who wrote a 1,200-line poem. William Wallace was one of those lost figures in history. And a hundred years after, after William Wallace, the poem uh, made its way to the surface and wound up and, and, and never even heard of again for, from, uh, from, 12, from the 1200s, 1290s, and into the 1300s until somebody discovered this writing and went back and turned it into a movie. And now out of their creative expression, history and remembrance is awakened. I wonder what happened in King David's life that might be waiting for a revelation in you that's going to cause you to find your voice and rise up and, and, and change, change the future. See, music is uh, called the universal language for a reason. But music, it, when you think about music, think about these guys playing up here this morning. Uh, you know, I'm going I'm to talk a little bit about that if it's all right. Um, uh, because... See, that's, that was not just their music. It's their language. It was their language that has music in its dialect. If you cut these guys, when they play with the kind of skill that your bass player plays with, I can tell you right now, he didn't start this morning. He's been playing, and that's become a part of the language of who he is. That's a part of the language of who Matt and Natalie are. They play with skill. The way they play, play with skill is born out of kingdom purposes. If you cut them, they're going to bleed notes and tones that release the beauty of their lives. And that's exactly the way it was in the days of Tabernacle of David. In David's day, there were 4,000 of them with 288 trained musicians. And seven times a day, they would go into the spontaneity of song and start writing the same way Matt was, just finding a lyric what seemed to be finding a lyric in space out there was actually creating a language for agreement to change something in the atmosphere. And in those days, they would go, David would just reach out seven times a day and begin to play a spontaneous song. And, that, and the lyric that would flow out of that would be captured by these scribes walking around, following him around, writing down every word and every little nuance of the sound or the song. And then he would say, get this over to the chief musician upon so-and-so. And they'd go over to that, and they would scribe and take it to that chief musician, and they would determine the tones and the sounds and the textures that would be put into the atmosphere that would set promises and covenants in motion through prayers and prophecy and their poetry and their songwriting and their storytelling. All of it would be set in motion, and we're still singing those today. Because when he would come to one of those spontaneous songs, what he was saying is, is, and he would even say it sometimes, hey, scribe, 
tell them now this will be a truth that will endure to all generations. And we're still singing those truths today. And when that truth comes into the room, because of the blood of Jesus applied and the righteousness of, of, of our Savior applied to our lives, when that truth is awakened in that room, it awakens something in us and causes that truth to be a truth that makes us free. Which is, well, truth don't set you free. The Bible says it makes you free, which means there's a process. And so through that process of music, truth is now released into our lives and changes our dialect, therefore changes our destiny. Because it's not just about believing a concept. It's about experiencing presence born out of that truth. And that's a part of, the atmosphere, that's part of what the atmosphere of worship is. So it's about, it's about engaging heaven into this atmosphere. Uh, one, one word, now listen, think about this. One word can awaken an emotion, can't it? I mean, think about the words that will awaken emotion or passion or, or beauty even. But one word can awaken uh, uh, an emotion. Now, watch this little parallel. Then emotion awakens imagination. There are words that I could say in this room that would awaken an emotion and then, I, then that emotion would carry your imagination into a new and wonderful place. And when emotion and imagination embrace, they're always listening for a melody that will allow them to outlive their moment together. And that's why the Word of God has to be sung. And that's why in the New Testament, music took on a whole new definition. Remember what it was in the New Testament? They were speaking and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms. So psalms, the canonized word of God set to music that they wrote out of the spontaneity of seven times a day praising the Lord. I bet you there's, I bet you there's 10 songs that could come out of what was sung here this morning. There's at least 10 songs and poets and uh, poetry and pieces of art and dances. And like, you know, dancing Dancing is nothing more than, than uh, sculpting the air and honoring space. Think about it. There's no worship going on right there. That's vo it's void, vacuum. But when you bring your body under submission to the desire to express emotion, passion, love unto God, you step into that and you bring, you, you're, you're sculpting the air and honoring space. You, you've created an atmosphere of worship when you bring the submission of your pure worship into that, into that space. That's what heaven is made up of, is people finding the unlimited, unbridled expression of spirit and presence of God. So when emotion, we, they, they, they dance together. Now music is married to the fine art of memory. You ever notice that? You can, you can sing the first three notes of a song and all of a sudden you go there. You hear that intro from 1959 or 72 or whatever it is that was your, that was your you know, and you, you'll go right back to the drive-in theater, 1972, out there on the Bowling Green Road. And, and, you know, and, and you remember what was playing. You can smell the popcorn. You could, you, you, all of that memory comes, comes rushing back in because music is married to the fine art of memory. 
That's why I say that an old guitar is a place where memories secretly gather and they wait for you to touch the strings. And the sound of memories will slowly gather around the quiet place at your window sometime. And for a moment, you just stand still on a stepping stone that's called the presence while yesterday ushers you into your new day. And pretty soon you start living your life with an understanding of eternity if you're a worshiper. Because you know that you can reach into heaven and you know that you can reach into eternity from this room because that's what music does for us. It's not just about some ecstatic thing. It's, it's about the beauty of the presence of God awakening the song that your spirit was born to sing. See, <clears throat> let's see. Um, <clears throat> I noticed, well, let's, let, let, me, let me, see, creativity is not a product. Creativity is a process and a partnership with the Holy Spirit. Creativity is not just activity. It's not something you do. It's actually an expression of being fully alive. I think, I think there are folks that will do woodworking that carries healing anointings. And I believe there are people that have graces on their lives to, as a chef. To, I, know, I know my mama can make some fried chicken that will change your life. I know that. Because she knows all the right ingredients. And she knows exactly how to. And her creative process, it, uh, it, you, you see, I, I don't want to belittle creativity by bringing it just right down to home. But the fact is, what if there were people that were cooking meals that were an expression of their worship? And the overflow, see, that's why Jesus said it like this, worship first, service second. Remember when he conquered the enemy at the temptation? He says, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shall thou serve. So that means worship first, service second. And the overflow of your worship is what then empowers you to serve humanity and carry a kingdom-building anointing. Because as soon as that statement was made, worship first, service second, he went straight to doing the miracles, casting out demons, found him 12 folks and says, let's get at it. He walked right out of that temptation thing. What did he do? Walked right down to the creek. There it was. <clears throat> and when he walked down there, he said, there's these two guys uh, casting their nets. And when, it, when he found these two fellows casting their nets, what did he say? Throw down your net and follow me. Now, if we know where that comes from, see, in the, back in the days of, of uh, uh, in the biblical days, what would happen like when they were training young students to walk in truth? Now, and you, when you think about it, poetry and creativity is just beautifying the truth. So if you're a songwriter or a poet or an artist, if you're an artist, you're supposed to beautify the truth. It's what you do with your creative expression. Well, these guys, now see, back in biblical days, the way it would work is a, is a rabbi would teach the word of God to the young men. So all the young guys would come in one morning, all these students, and when they would come in, the miss rabbi the night before had put, in, put, had put all of the, uh, the, the word that was to be committed to memory upon the board. And they'd come in to sit down in a rabbinical school. There would be a tablet, you know, the size of 
say the size of that, at each desk, and there would be a stick laying there. But this thing, Miss Rabbi, had smeared this whole thing the night before with honey. And they would sit down and they would take this stick and look at the word of God that was on the, to be memorized. And they would take that stick and they would scratch in that honey. And David said, I remember, because thy word was like honey to my lips. And see, honey is the only food source that does not have the ability to have bacteria. So thy word is honey, healing to my lips and to my life. And there was another practice that would take place. Is there would come the time where it was what we would call, in today's world, we would call uh, cut day. Remember in school, you walk, walk in and say, okay. Now, you say, okay, today's cut day. Oh, man, you didn't make the cut. You're out of here. You didn't make the cut. You're, you're, you might, you're, and so what they would do is they would come in and judge according to your giftings and how you'd respond is whether or not you could be a rabbi or be a leader. And if you didn't make it, you're out of here. Well, where are you going to go? They just, in other words, you, you, you don't look like a, t a TV preacher. You don't have the right kind of hair. You don't have the right kind of charisma and gifting. You know, you're not real leadership, so you're just out of here. See, there's that comparison and competition thing. And when you're thrown out, what do you do? Well, you just go be about your father's business. So if your daddy was a fisherman, you become a fisherman. If your daddy was a carpenter, you become a carpenter. If you become, you're gone. Now Jesus, on that day, when he established worship first, service second, he walks right out of there and right down to the water and he says, fellas, throw down your nets. I'm going and follow me and you will become everything that the world ever said that you would never become. And what the religious systems say that you could never be, you just throw down your nets now and follow me. I will make you become because the process of walking it out will awaken who you really are. No matter what institutions say, what man says, what, what political systems say, what educational systems say, there's a call and a destiny on your life because you're walking with me and we're going to change the world. And he wasn't looking for the, the cool bunch that all got it all together and seems to have everything. He found a ragtag bunch down there splashing in the edge of the water wondering if it was going to eat tomorrow night. That's who he found. And, he go, and they were casting their nets. And he walked right on down the creek there and he ran into the second bunch. And the second bunch, it says they were mending their nets. And he says, come on, throw down your nets and follow me. Now, if, if he, had, he had walked up to a bunch of carpenters, he would have said, throw down your hammer and follow me. I'll make you builders of men. It wasn't about the fishing. Right? Whatever you are. In other words, you commit what you are to me because your whole world's about to change. You're, you're stepping into a new day. And when, when, he, said, when he said that, <clears throat> uh, you notice he, had, he, he picked the casters and he picked the menders. And there's folks in here, you are gifted for casting. And there's some of you in this room, you're gifted for mending. Some of you are menders. You carry that mending heart. Some of you are, are, are the catchers. And you know what? We've got to have casters and menders. 
but we've got to have people that are willing to throw down the limitations that man has put on you and the bondage that man's put on you to say that you, you never will. You know, because I'll never have a this and I'll never have a that. You know, you look at all this, what's gifting out there? Ah, boy, what if there's, what, what if the, the Lord's about to just turn that whole system upside down? And those quiet, nameless ones that are just out there mending nets are the ones that are going to change the world and turn the world upside down. Sound of who you really are, your truest voice. Because your creativity is not a product, it's a partnership with the Holy Spirit. Uh, God's looking for a, for a generation that will live the what-ifs. Our life should be drawn toward him, walking with him with an with a anticipation of the holy what-ifs. The ones that are saturated in hope, then immersed in truth and welcomed imagination. Why, is it, why in the world do we tell our kids, oh, that's, honey, that's just your imagination? As if imagination was wrong. What about go ahead and dream the dreams of God and let your imagination have full release? Just imagine what God can do in you. And you know, dreams don't even have to come true to be valuable. Sometimes that dream will just, give, it will just sustain you through dark seasons while a more focused purpose will come into view for your life if you'll just go ahead and allow your imagination to believe that God here's what happens with us prophetic folks prophetic folks will we'll, we'll get a word from God and we're going to tell everybody what's going to happen because that's a part of what prophecy does there's three expressions that we need oh, we know and we realize prophecy not only speaks or, or prophecy can predict the future but that's not all it does it don't just predict the future prophecy creates the future and here's the one that we always forget but also prophecy will prevent the future that's why the prophets would do what they did they'd bring a word but, pro but prophecy is not about telling you what to do prophecy is about awakening who you are and if you wake to the fullness of who you are, what are you going to do? You'll prevent the darkness that the enemy had in your future. You will prevent that by aligning with God's purposes with a pure and repentant heart. And, and that'll happen over, collectively over God's people too. That's why those prophets would speak to the people of God. So it wouldn't be the future. Their future wouldn't be famine. It would be favor because worship would be restored. And that would break the consequences of their denying God and turning their worship and whoring after other gods. Because that will bring famine. But that famine in the future would go away because they would turn their eyes back to God and rightly relate themselves to God. Prophecy is a, is, is a powerful force. And one that, uh, and one that we need to... Uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember where, where I was going with that, but it really was good. There were... <laughs> Uh, but, but, but maybe that's enough right there. But uh, huh. I used to could remember everything, whether it happened or not, you know. <clears throat> uh, let me get it. When we think of worship, worship is not 
about meeting the needs of some great big insecure God. Some big old egotistical God with identity issues is not our God. He is a father and he seeks us to worship him because in moments of spirit and truth worship born out of a holy imagination and seeing him, he, re he receives our undivided attention and the purest expressions of our love. While he gives us his undivided attention and purest expressions of his love. So those are the moments when both parties, he and us, experience love as a gift and not a reward. And seekers become finders in moments of worship. He was seeking us and we were seeking him. And worship is when love finds love. There's something healing happens when you worship in spite of your weariness. And you, and you praise in spite of your pain. You know, that, that, that gives us that opportunity to step into his presence and find fullness of joy when it don't make sense to the mind. Because circumstances, or even the culture, don't get it. But when we step into his presence, it ain't about getting it, it's about being. So we need to be a people that create such high winds of praise that it dislodges hurting humanity from the bogs and the moorlands of all of their desperation too. And it causes them to hear the notes so loud of your worship. They're so loud and clear that they awaken the song that they were born to sing as well. Wouldn't it be, isn't it awesome to think about that we might just be doing our cousins praising for him until he gets it? You may have a prodigal son that you're, praise, you're doing his praising right now because you're sustaining the dreams of God in an atmosphere of the presence of God, waiting for the day of the deepest invasion of his heart and the deepest invasion of his soul. Right now, there are prodigals that are not hearing the sound of the Father's house because they're too close to a grunting hog. They're out there in the slime right now hearing and, and, and letting all their dreams go away because there's going to be room for big dreams of God when they hear. Notice when this prodigal was coming, he could hear the sound of music in the father's house. So the sound of this house just might be creating sustained atmosphere and covenant promises and blessings born out of your bloodline waiting, waiting to, because your, some of them, some in your bloodline is not walking with God, but they will because the sound of this house is sustaining the sound of their blood until they embrace everything that they were born to. Now, and, and, and you know, when, when I think of, when I think of, 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 of worship, I also think that, uh, where, did I, where did I put that? I want to, I want to say something to y'all, and I keep looking forward here. But don't try this at home. I'm a professional. But there's a new expression of the prophetic coming to this house. And when new expressions of the prophetic comes, prophets are going to be raised up in this house that will challenge the old guard that does not appreciate what they didn't initiate. Because there's an understanding of the prophetic that's out there right now that's about to really be dealt with. There's a whole new breed of prophets and prophecy coming. It'll be those that will move in sound and song and in the spirit realm, accessing heaven that will create atmospheres of predict, create, and prevent in one atmosphere. 
And it won't even be so much born out of their words. It'll be born out of their, their motion and emotion and the song that they carry and the prayer of the Spirit and the song of the Spirit will be predicting, creating, and preventing all at the same time because it's the sound of heaven. And the sound of heaven is not static. It's a constant sense of movement in, within the glory of the sound and the light of God. That's what heaven is about. And when, you know, for, for example, what is that atmosphere of ever moving? There, there, we as human beings only hear 300, uh, we can only see 300,000 color variations with our eyes. But in heaven, there are colors that we don't even have names for. Because light is on frequency and on a level that we can't even confine to our senses because it's glory. It's the, it's the glory of God, which is all the frequencies in light spectrum and beyond. And it's the sound of many waters, which is all the frequencies in the sound spectrum and beyond. And heaven is in a constant state of, uh, and here's why it can never be boring in heaven in worship, is because the center of it all is the throne of God, the presence of God. Let's pretend we're in heaven right now, and there. Anytime you find elders, the only other governing body in heaven, every one of them are doing the same thing. They're on their faces before God, worshiping God. And in that atmosphere of God's glory, the reason it can never get boring in heaven, and we're going to have some questions to ask, of course, when we get there. I, I, I've heard people say, I can't wait to get to heaven so I can ask Moses about so-and-so. Or I can talk to St. Peter about so-and-so. And you... Or I, and since some real religious folks, I say, well, I just want to have a little talk with Jesus is what I want to do. I want to tell him all about my troubles. He will hear. But you know who I want to talk to when I get to heaven? See, there are four creatures that are hovering, defying gravity. And they're just hovering around the throne of God. And see, the thing about the throne of God is, is God... Every time there is movement, you see God in a way he's never been seen before. Every time creativity occurs in the earth, we reveal another facet of God's nature. So every time there's movement there, you see God in a way he's never been seen before. And there, all they can do is every time they move and see him in a way he's never been seen before in eternity past, they say, holy Holy, holy! He's holy in the eternal. Well, there's always three holies: holy in the eternal past, holy in the eternal now, and holy in the eternal future. And every time you think it's crescendoed and the music is settled, no, holy, and it goes to a whole nother realm that has never been experienced before, because that's what God revealed of His unlimited, boundless nature in that moment. And the feller I want to talk to is the guy that's swarming around in the air with all the eyes. <laughs> this guy's got eyes on top of his head. He's got eyes under his arm. He's got eyes in the bend of his knees. He's got eyes in the middle of his belly. Got eyes. This guy's covered with eyeballs. I want to say, hey, eye guy. <laughs> I'll talk to St. Peter later. I just need to know something. How many fingers am I holding up? I want, I want to have a discussion with him, and I'm going to ask him this question. I'm going to say, why in the world do you reckon God created you with all them eyeballs? That's one weird character right there. 
But see, they're not limited to our understanding of what we're supposed to look like, sound like. They don't have these limitations of this side. I want to ask him, why do you think God made you with all those eyeballs? And I think he's going to say, because somebody had to have a fighting chance to see him in all of his glory. And there can be no, I'm in no, no matter what position I'm in, I, I can behold the beauty and be immersed and absorbed and beholding the beauty of God. No matter which way I'm looking or turn or anything else, I'm encountering the glory of his presence. That is going to be an awesome atmosphere to be in, to hear songs and sounds that are not limited to expressed emotions in this realm. We're listening to that realm. And that's what I'm here to tell you today. That realm is about to invade this realm. And that realm, there's no sickness, no death, and disease. Are there worship atmospheres like this? that were created to access particular expressions of his divine nature and his multifaceted nature. What is the one that gives signature sound and life and song and the radiance of his presence to this room? That's what we need to be going after. We need to be going after something more than church services. Because there is a world out there that's completely void of revelatory imaginations accessing through the sacred intuition of their spirit to know the Word of God and speak the truth in such a way that it creates as well as predicts but also prevents because the world is not getting any prettier it's getting in a mess because of the darkness of man's heart so what what if we we started kind of relooking at this whole thing call truth and realize that it's not about facts it's about truth facts inform truth transforms so let our songs be saturated and immersed in truth saturated in the word of god there's young folks that don't even know all of the bible that god's putting word in them even today awakening things in their lives it's going to cause them uh, to be a dispenser of the truth of God with anointings like no other generation has ever experienced. And I'm telling you, there's some of them in this room. Uh, this is not some far off thing. In this room, there are people that are sitting right now receiving seed dreams and seed prophecy of God that's going to change the world. I, I, I can tell you that without reservation. It's a renaissance thing that's coming now. Uh, music is response to nature and creation. It's no longer just going to be about worship service, worship events. Look at the things now that we, there's a, we talk about worship services. We want to do worship services better. Worship events. Listen to this one. Here's a word we hear all the time in the body, worship industry. Since when were we given permission to industrialize worship? Worship lifestyles? What if, what if it became the knowing of our lives that we're actually being introduced into throne room worship? 
What if there were that what if there were still ladders for those to ascend and descend and we understood it and embraced it? Hmm. What if throne room worship represented to us something that's without limitations and boundaries and definitions? Unbound by time and space. It's not about place. It's about presence. Movement. Sound and light. Worship. Uh, um, well, you know, it's about, I don't have conclusions. When I get tired of thinking, I just go eat. So what I'm going to do here in just a minute, I'm just, I'm getting a little hungry, so I'm just going to wander off. <clears throat> but, but before I go, uh, I, I just want to finish one thought that I started to introduce a few minutes ago. There are Psalms, the canonized word of God, set to music that, that are born out of truth. Psalms, hymns, some a lot of our foundational theology and doctrines that we carry true in our heart are born out of those old hymn writers that carried an encounter with God and their songs became our encounter. So if you have an encounter with God, you know what that means? Now you carry encounter. If you've had a defining moment with God, now you carry defining moments. And a lot of our theology today is because those old hymn writers took their skills and their creative expression and, and gave us the songs that we sing. And then there's the third one, psalms, hymns, and what's the last one? Spiritual songs. Spiritual songs, is a, that's Greek because it's New Testament, so that's ode pneumatikos. An ode is a song of an unrehearsed nature brought forth with noble feeling. All right? That's an ode. Pneuma is the breath of the spirit or the breath of God. So we got a song, brought, uh, unrehearsed, spontaneous song, brought out of the expression of your spirit, brought forth with passion and noble feeling and, and emotion. And, and it's so real to you, it's real all the way to your core. You sing it as an expression of life. And it actually is the breath of God breathing life and awakening man that's in that atmosphere to who they were created to be and that's how it all began that was is the foundation of humanity's worship because god spoke and created trees and flowers and oceans and skies and stars and all that he spoke with the, with the declaration of the sound of his voice remember right in the very beginning it was darkness on the face of the deep, and it was just nothing. Uh, there, there was nothing there. It was void. It was, he said, in the beginning, God created. But in that beginning, the earth was without form, and it was void. Y'all remember that? Well, if it was without, it was, but yet it was there. It, the earth was, was without form and void, but the earth was. Hmm. And in that... Without form and void is the words wabohu and tohu, which means nothingness, ain't not, just nada. But there was a hovering and a vibrational thing going on there. And what that means is the subatomic particles of the dirt itself was trembling in anticipation, waiting for the voice of the Lord. And wabohu and tohu, without form and void, Nothing, nada, which means it's like 
tofu is like tofu. That's a bunch of nothing right there. <laughs> yeah, wabohu, just, it, it, huh? do what? Ain't that, it's just, it's just sorriness is all of it. <laughs> um, I, tofu means nothing to nobody. I am a biscuit and gravy man myself, and I'm not ashamed of it. But into that nothingness is when God spoke, and the sound of his voice alerted all of matter to come into the form. Because his voice, declared from heaven, is across the threshold of sound and light. And when he said, let there be, he was not asking permission. Come on, let there be light. No, his divine nature expressed itself, and light exploded sound and light and began to shape all of matter into what it was what it was to be that's how much authority of the presence of God just at that declaration but he didn't create man like that did he he took that dirt and he yatsard which means pinch and squeeze and form so what was without form now has form and when he pinched and squeezed then he looked at that dirt and he said huh and it was that word nafesh, and there's two words, nafalk, which nafalk is the breath of God. So he expelled his breath, the New Testament, ruach, pneuma, breath of God, went huh, to that dirt, and that dirt went huh, 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 and that was the beginning of rhythm. When the heart responded, to the presence of his voice, it began to sing. And he rose up out of, man rose up out of that dirt. And the word worship is the word shakal. And, and by the way, that second word, one was nafak and one is nafesh. And that means to pant as a woman in labor. So when God said, huh, dirt went, huh, 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 huh. That was where life was born because the lung and the blood and the, and the life was in the blood. And you know, the Bible says that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And the blood that is flowing through your veins are made of the same properties as light. So when humanity begins to respond, now the breath, oxygen is generating the blood that causes us to be a song and they've discovered that your dna is actually a musical decoding so your song sweetheart is the only song on earth that sounds like your song my song is the only song on earth that sounds like my song because it's the signature of god the thumbprint of god upon my molecular makeup makes the song that i am because blood is flowing through my veins i got a song to sing and you know why God did that? Because he's awesome. That's why he did that. Now, now, let's, let, now let's go home with this. When that happened, then the word worship comes along, which is what we're created to do by the creator, to be creative in our worship, remember? Now, if that's who we are, and we're going to be worshipers, the word worship in the Old Testament is the word shakal. And shakal is a word that means to bow and put your face to the ground. That's why in some religions you see that happening. 
where they'll hear a sound will alert. That, that stuff starts and they'll bow and put their face to the ground. That's an expression of worship. And, and that is the song, that is the sound that will call a culture to respond. And, and with the tones and subtones and stuff of those cultures, it sounds strange to our Western ear, but nonetheless, that's what they do. Is that right? Now, when you put your face to the ground, here's why it's important to worship, to put your face to the ground, is because you've got to get your head below your heart. That's number one, Shokah. Number two is some, you've got to not only get your head below your heart, you are symbolically, you're returning. Worship is to return to the place from which you were created for the purpose you were created. Amen. And number three is if you're going to be a worshiper, sometimes you just got to get down to earth. It ain't about some high and lofty religious stuff. It's really about just I was born from this place and I return to the God who created me from nothing. And that's why worship is, true worship is born out of humility. And right now the world is not becoming more and more humble. Let me tell you, man's high and lofty stuff is driving them to, to try and notice something. Christianity and our history is being rewritten by scoffers. So rise up with the truth in you. Rise up with the truth in you. Tell the stories and remember the mighty acts of God and rem remind the next generations to come. Because right now, when I, like, uh, I see these young men sitting around here and I realize that I'm asking the Holy Spirit to cause something to be said that 500 years from now, your sons and your sons' sons and your sons' sons' sons will carry something that's awake in you. And we will not doze off into the nothingness and embrace the famine and invite the famine into humanity. We're about the tabernacle of David kind of worship. And that tabernacle of David is about breaking famine. That's why Amos 8, 11, there was a famine of the hearing. And there's a famine of the hearing of the word of the Lord in our land right now. But he says, I'll raise up the tabernacle of David so that the sower be overtaken by the reaper, planter overtaken by the harvest. So when we start moving in the kind of stuff I'm talking about, guys, we are an expression in the earth that will awaken the harvest so the nations will know that will know their God. Amen. All right. Well, God bless y'all. Thank you for listening to me for so long. Uh, my wife don't do that. Uh, <clears throat> now, if y'all tell her I said that, you realize what a, what a mess I'll be in, don't you? And uh, but it no, it really is a, a joy to get to be here with you guys. And I've known Clay and Susan for a long time, and it's so good to meet uh, meet you guys. And and uh, I just want to pray a prayer blessing over you before I go. Lord, I just ask you to do just do wonderful and marvelous outrageously beautiful things in this house and in this region uh, release a sound out of here Lord do something in this house that changes the nations Lord they're, they're, th th this is a people that are carrying your heart and, 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 that's, and that's what David was about is he had a heart after God. The only guy that God ever said, there's a man after my own heart. Found in a little obscure shepherd's field on the tower of the flock. He sung a song one day. 
And, every, and the whole world changed, and it's still changing today because of the worship that was in his heart. So, Lord, I'm asking you for the generations to come to know, to know that something happened in someone's heart and in their bloodline on this day in this room that shaped culture. And, Lord, that's too big for our minds to wrap around, so we just... We just wrap our hearts around that and thank you for putting promises in motion in our lives and answering prayer and calling the prodigals back to the sound. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless y'all.